greetings and welcome to the third episode of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today our topic is East Asian languages and scripts, and I want to open up with a little story of a trip I took to Chengdu in the province of Sichuan uh, in China a couple years ago. I was invited to give a few talks at Sichuan University, and I had ample opportunity to stroll around campus in my free time. And as I strolled around campus, I noticed that many of the people who I would walk by, uh, universities in uh, China, um, are a little different than universities um, that I'm used to in America and Europe. Uh, it's not just students. There's entire families there, oftentimes extended families, uh, marketplaces where normal people who really don't have any um, active role in teaching or um, being a student um, or administration in the university, they still live on campus. And they're, you know, going about their daily lives, going to market, buying things, hanging out, doing laundry or whatever. Um, and you can, you know, get a little glimpse into their lives as you walk around. And I was noticing that many of the, the, the more elderly people that, that I was noticing on the sidewalks who were hanging out, chatting with one, one another and whatnot, um, I couldn't understand anything that they were saying. Okay, which for me, I mean, I'm, I'm a foreigner. Chinese is not my first language, but I've studied it for quite a long time. And I thought, you know, I'm familiar enough. I've lived long enough in China and Taiwan and whatnot. I should at least be able to pick up a word or two, <laughs> you know? Um, and I couldn't understand anything. So the next time that I was walking by this area with some of these people, I uh, was walking. I was being escorted by one of my hosts who was a man from Beijing. He was one of the professors on campus, and he was from Beijing. He, he was relatively young, all right? He was probably in his 30s, I, I, I would guess. Um, and he grew up entirely in Beijing. And I asked him, I said, here, listen to these people over here. Can you understand what they're saying? Because I can't even understand one single word. And as he walked by, he tried to strain, you know, to listen. And after he walked by, he said, no, I can't really understand them either. Um, and I was like, well... It, that's strange. You're also not able to understand what they're saying. Chinese is your first language. You were born and raised in China. Um, and he says, oh no, it's Sichuanese. It's their own dialect. Um, and uh, I, I can't understand what they're saying. And this really reinforced many of the lessons that I had learned about uh, uh, language and script um, in East Asia and China more specifically which is to say basically that there is an enormous diversity in all languages. When we think of languages, what we're often thinking of is a standardized form that was spoken primarily in one major city. And after the 18th, 19th, sometimes as late as the middle of the 20th century, this major big city finally was able to use the powers of mass obligatory education and mass media, radio, TV, to disseminate their version of speech and script to all the other people in their country. All right, French, some people describe what we think of as French as basically the dialect of Paris. It's a cliche that we often say that a, a uh, language is just a dialect with a gun. Or no, it's a dialect with an army. All right, it gives you the sense that there is, you know, within any, any given country or plot of land, uh, there's many different mutually unintelligible forms of speech that are spoken. Okay, um, but when we're thinking of in broad terms of history and what languages and scripts are spoken of throughout history, 
and we say things like, oh, the Chinese language has been in use for, you know, so many years or whatnot, and this is where it developed. We're actually saying the form of speech and writing that was used in one or maybe a handful of big cities that had a lot of political and economic power, it's the language of those places that creates what we think of as Chinese. And once you leave those cities, you very quickly encounter an unimaginably diverse form of, of speech that you can't understand. Okay, There is no standardization of a form of speech and a form of writing until you have mass media and mass education. And these things occur, are developed, are implemented, in different parts of the world at different times. Uh, you know, in Europe, uh, oftentimes these things are going to be a little bit earlier. And so you have forms of national forms of speech, what the English language is, what the French language is, the German language is. They will have solidified a little bit more by the 18th and 19th century. But in other parts of the world in which you don't have obligatory mass education, and, you know, national newspapers and radio and television and, um, you know, transportation networks that keep people in close touch with each other and in close touch with other forms of speech. Uh, standardization, homogenization of a language into what we think of as Chinese or Japanese or Korean that happens really late. And this example of what I encountered at Sichuan University is a perfect example of what should legitimately be called a separate language, all right, Sichuanese, a language within the Sino-Tibetan language family, but is not what we think of as Mandarin Chinese, has endured among people of a certain age who grew up and had their forms of speech um, set in stone, so to speak, when they were young. And when these people that I was hearing their, you know, Sichuanese from when they were young, when they were learning how to speak and had you know, all their patterns of speech fixed, they would have been the 1940s and 1950s. They never were processed through mass education, which in China doesn't really occur until the 1950s and the 1960s. That's the first generation where you have a uniform national script, forms of speech that everyone is being exposed to on a regular basis. Okay, if you don't have mass education, mass media, then speech changes pretty fast and go anywhere in the world. Any given form of speech will basically become unintelligible to a previous form of speech every couple hundred of years. That's how fast language evolves. Okay, now in China, in East Asia, you have just as much linguistic diversity as you do anywhere else in the world. Okay, when we speak of Japanese in this episode, we're basically speaking about the language of Tokyo. Okay, that's essentially what it is. If someone grew up in Tokyo and learned what we think of as urban Japanese in the 1880s, if he left Tokyo and went out to the rural areas just 50, 100 miles away, he probably would have a very difficult time communicating with the rural residents that he encounters very likely be mutually unintelligible forms of speech, even though, yes, of course, they're all within the Japanese language family. 
but you can, there's a lot of room for diversity within a single language family. Cantonese and Mandarin Chinese are both within the Sino-Tibetan family, but they're just as different from each other as French is from German. Okay. A lot of, I remember hearing about embarrassing stories when I was learning Chinese, first year Chinese. Someone thinks, hey, you know, I'm getting the hang of this. I want to go to a Chinese restaurant and impress my parents with the Chinese I've learned, only to go to a restaurant, you know, in Seattle or San Francisco or wherever you live and find out that the waiters all speak Cantonese because, you know, until very recently, the overwhelming majority of uh, migrants from China to other parts of the world were from southern China, so they spoke Cantonese or one of the many other forms of speech of southern China. Cantonese is not the only one. Um, and so maybe he'd be able to pick out some Chinese characters on the menu, but uh, likely couldn't communicate in Mandarin Chinese with the waiter unless the waiter had also gone out of his way to study Mandarin Chinese of the north. Okay. Um, I often, you know, my own personal background, uh, my wife is from Taiwan, and I often have an opportunity to go to Taiwan, and I have a lot of, you know, a lot of Taiwanese in-laws and when I first went there, I remember being surprised. I thought, oh, I've learned Chinese for several years now. I'll be able to communicate with them. Uh, should be no problem. Only to find out when I got there that they all speak Taiwanese among themselves. Now, Taiwanese, yeah, it's a Chinese language family. Language? It's in the family, just like Italian and French are in the same family. Uh, but mutually unintelligible with Cantonese, with Mandarin, with Shanghainese, with Sichuanese. Um, unless you've specially gone out of your way to study Taiwanese, you won't be able to understand anyone who speaks Taiwanese. And of course they speak it among themselves. Why wouldn't they? That's their first language. My father-in-law's first language was Taiwanese. It wasn't Mandarin. And so when I talk to him, when I talk to my Taiwanese father-in-law, who most people, if they saw him, they'd say, oh, he's Han or he's Chinese. He would perfectly, you know, absolutely fit within those ethnic identity categories. Um, when I speak to him, we are both speaking in a second acquired foreign language. I am speaking in Chinese, which is not my native language, and he is speaking, uh, I'm sorry, I'm speaking in Northern Mandarin Chinese, as it was institutionalized in Beijing in the 20th century, and so is he. It's not his first language either, and he had to learn it as a second language, much like I had to. Okay, so why do we so often hear about you know, this hum linguistically homogenous China. If Cantonese and Mandarin are just as different from each other as French and German, then why do we only talk about the Chinese language all the time? As if it's this homogenous entity that doesn't change and is spread out throughout the entire country. Well, one of the reasons, I think, from a historical perspective, is that what you do get in China is you get a recurrent political unity in which large states, every couple hundred years or so, do tend to extend their borders and consolidate control over an area of land that is roughly similar to what their predecessors had several hundred years ago. Another way of saying this is that the East Asian heartland, the Yellow River Valley, the Yangtze River, between the two rivers, that does get reincorporated over and over again into various states, into a single political entity. Whereas in Europe, after the Roman Empire, you never get a single political state that's ever able to unite all of Western Europe, all of, all of Western Central and Eastern Europe into a single state. And it's a patchwork quilt of competing states for hundreds of years 
Many try to do it. Charlemagne will try to do it. Napoleon will try to do it. Hitler will try to do it. They all fail. So for whatever reason, it's, it's occasionally possible every couple hundred of years to unite under one political umbrella a big chunk of continental East Asia. And it's not really possible to do that in Europe. And so you get a lot of different states that get associated with different languages, even though linguistic diversity is exactly the same in Europe as it is in East Asia. So if you want to think of Cantonese as a dialect of Chinese, you're free to do that. But just know that that's a political decision to say that. You have a political agenda in acknowledging that Cantonese is a dialect of Chinese and not a separate, mutually unintelligible language within the Sino-Tibetan language family. And part of the reason why many people have a vested interest in talking about dialects in China, the Sichuanese dialect, the Taiwanese dialect, the Cantonese dialect, the Shanghainese dialect, is because there is a recent history over the past 150 years of foreign powers trying to split China apart. How do you split a country apart? You try to convince people who live in that country that they represent different constituent components of that state that deserve their own state. How do you say you deserve your own state? You say, well, ethnically, culturally, we're sufficiently different that we deserve our own state. And one, one of the most powerful ways that you can say we're ethnically and culturally different is to say our language is different. We speak a different language. So if the Chinese central government were to acknowledge that Taiwanese is a separate language, not just a dialect. Well, that gives a lot of fuel for Taiwanese separatists to say, hey, Taiwan should be independent. Look, we have a separate language. It's not Chinese. Same thing with Sichuanese or Cantonese. It's a deliberate decision to say, no, 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 no. These are, these are dialects, not languages, as they would be if they were in Europe. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. And it's informed by recent history, and it's informed by political agendas. To give you an example of an alternative way of thinking about this, a path not taken, well, the Russians, in the form of the Soviet Union in the 1920s, when they were undergoing an ethnic classification project in their state to try to identify who lives within our state, what sort of ethnic groups do we have? Language was a major fundamental component of how they defined the different ethnic groups. Oftentimes, language becomes the default criterion by which an ethnic group is identified. There's supposed to be others, culture, customs, uh, livelihood, but language often becomes the default most important criterion of an ethnic group. And the Soviet linguists, they, they examined their overseas Chinese migrant communities who lived within the borders of the Soviet Union. And they said, how do we deal with these guys? If we go by their forms of speech, a strict definition of different uh, ethnic groups, then speech is really important. And they said, these groups of Chinese, overseas Chinese who live here, they speak radically, mutually, unintelligibly different languages from one another. They're not all speaking anything that we would think of as Chinese. They're speaking forms of speech that are in the Chinese language family, but they can't understand one another. These are different languages. And they came up with a new classification scheme for, their, for the Chinese who lived within the Soviet Union. And they said, here are our ethnic groups based on linguistic groups among the Chinese community in the Soviet Union. They said, we have groups that we call Shandunsky, Guandunsky, Fuzianskoy, Jiansu, Jizyangziana, 
and Xiangxi, excuse me for my Russian, I know no Russian, and I know anyone who knows Russian is laughing at me right now. These were their categories for Chinese ethnic groups that lived in the Soviet Union. If you know anything about the names of Chinese provinces, these are essentially Russian pronunciations of Chinese provinces. What they're saying is, is that basically each province in China speaks a different enough language that it's not a dialect, it's a different language. And that should be reflected in the identity categories that we put upon these people. Now, this didn't get very far, and the Chinese never adopted it, obviously. Why would they? They said, we have enough trouble trying to keep the foreign imperialists from trying to split apart our country by playing identity politics. We don't need to further categorize different groups among what we want to say are the Chinese. And so they made the political decision to say, oh no, 90, 93% of the population is Han. And they all speak Chinese. And anything else is a dialect of Chinese. All right, that is a political decision. And the dream of a homogenous Mandarin Chinese language is actually coming to fruition under the current communist state, just like it has in so many other states throughout world history over the past 200 years or so. You do now have over 60 years of mass education, obligatory education, going to schools, being exposed to state media, newspapers, radio, TV, transportation networks that keep people in close contact with one another. And so people really are learning Mandarin Chinese as it's spoken in Beijing, and it is crowding out other languages in the Sino-Tibetan language family. In Taiwan now, people learn Taiwanese as a subject in school. That's the surest sign that a language is going extinct as, you know, a first mother tongue is when it has to be learned in an academic context. That means you're not learning it from your mom or your dad. And that's going to happen probably on China in China as well. Eventually, you're going to start seeing Cantonese being learned as a second language, sort of this curiosity to take cultural pride in. Uh, but slowly, it's going to be replaced by Mandarin Chinese, um, just like so many other dialects throughout the world have also been replaced. Now, let's get on with it and talk about the language, the speech, and writing situation that we find in East Asia. What language families do we find in East Asia, and where? Well, we can outline four of them. The first one I've already uh, uh, made mention of several times, Sino-Tibetan. As this name would suggest, within Sino-Tibetan, you're going to find all the Chinese languages or dialects, whatever you want to say, uh, the, the, the Tibetan languages. And remember, when I say Tibetan, there is more than one Tibetan. There's, you know, there's many languages, and there's the Tibetan spoken in Lhasa, which is going to push out other ones. But if someone from Lhasa in the year 1500, you know, left Lhasa and went out to the countryside and talked to a herder of yaks, they probably would have a hard time communicating with one another, even though they're both speaking, quote-unquote, Tibetan. All right, Chinese, Tibetan, Burmese, and Tangut. Tangut, a now extinct language, but actually played a fairly outsized role for a brief period of a couple hundred years um, in northwestern China. Um, Altaic is another language family, and this is the most controversial. Linguists always go back and forth on whether the Altaic language family is a coherent family and if all these languages should be put in the same category, but we don't have time to get into those debates. All we're going to say is that Japanese, Korean, Mongol, and Turkic often get put in this rubric of the Altaic family. Um, Indo-European was actually, surprisingly, a language family that used to be found in antiquity, but is no longer there. Uh, there were the pe uh, people who spoke a language that was often referred to by scholars as Tokarian, 
an Indo-European language. Uh, you could find similarities with it with Celtic languages in far western Europe, um, and that uh, in antiquity had penetrated as far east as the Taklamakan Desert in northwestern, present-day northwestern China and Xinjiang. It wouldn't have been a part of any state that we would identify as a Chinese state or East Asian state at the time. But nonetheless, within the borders of the current day PRC, 2,500 years ago, there were people who spoke languages related to the languages that were spoken in Europe. It was there. And then finally, you also have Austro-Asiatic, uh, which the most prominent member of that is going to be Vietnamese, which actually, or, you know, the various forms of speech that get uh, grouped together under Vietnamese. Um, and Vietnamese is famous as one of the languages that actually borrowed the Chinese script and adapted it to its own purposes, and we'll explain what they did with it um, a little bit later. Now, what's so what sort of interesting features can we uh, can we outline about these four different language families? Well, let's begin with Austroasiatic. Austroasiatic is a language family that once spread from northwestern India all the way down to Vietnam and Southeast Asia. And then, if we're thinking of present-day borders of China and East Asia, it would have it would have penetrated a little bit into the southwestern part of China as it exists today. Uh, we know that one of the ancient states during the Warring States period, you know, 500, 400 to 200 BC or so, uh, the state of Chu, C-H-U, probably spoke an Austroasiatic language in the Hunan, Hubei area, southern parts, south central China, around 1000 to 500 BC. And we know that there are Chinese borrowings from the Austroasiatic family. Uh, the word for river, Jiang, for the Yangtze River. All right, the, the word that's used for river in the name, the Yangtze River, that's the more southern of the two major rivers that flow from west to east on the East Asian mainland, uh, is derived from the Thai Vietnamese word for a canal or a river, Kurung, Kurung, Kalang, uh, that gets translated into the Sino-Tibetan language family as Jiang, when the, the usual word for river in Chinese was He, it wasn't Jiang. You have the Huanghe, the Yellow River in the north, and you have the Yangtzejiang in the south. Uh, why do, where, 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 where does that strange word for river come from? It comes from the Austroasiatic family. Uh, scholars also think that the Chinese word for tiger, Hu, comes from an Austroasiatic word for feline. So you can see these languages did interact and borrow with one another in antiquity. Um, and the Vietnamese were one of the people, one of the few people, who took the Chinese script and said, you know what, we're not going to use this in its entirety. We're going to adapt this to meet the needs of our own form of speech, which is radically different from Chinese. And they said, how are we going to do that? Well, let's take the Chinese characters and let's take their original pronunciation as they were pronounced originally. And we'll just take that, match it up with the sounds of our language and use their graphs, their characters purely for the sounds that they represent, not the meanings, not the original words. And then we'll have it overlap with the sounds of Vietnamese to create entirely new meanings out of these characters. So it's the Chinese script, slightly modified, and someone who learns Chinese, classical Chinese, up in the East Asian heartland would not be able to read the Vietnamese version of Chinese as it was adapted. Um, the Altaic languages... Japanese, Korean, Mongol, Turkic. No sort of linguistic genetic relation to Sino-Tibetan whatsoever. English is just as closely related to Chinese as Japanese or Korean is. This sometimes comes to shock to people who don't have a whole lot of familiarity with the topic and think, wait a second, Koreans and Japanese, you know, ethnic 
eth- ethnically, culturally, um, they're you know similar to, to the Chinese, and then you know the Japanese even use Chinese characters. So the Koreans did too for a very long time, although they're falling more and more out of use on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, surely that's the same language. No, 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 no. There's a difference between writing and speech. The Japanese and Koreans, like the Vietnamese, borrowed the Chinese script, but their spoken forms of speech were radically different than Chinese. Anyone who's ever studied Chinese and Japanese, the languages, is, uh, you know, disabused of the notion of familiarity, linguistic familiarity, very quickly. Yeah, there's a lot of borrowings of individual nouns, but the grammar is completely different. The Altaic languages, tons of inflections, agglutinates, uh, different uh, order of words, all these uh, 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 conjugations that you don't see in Chinese. The Altaic languages, the grammar is extremely complex and difficult to learn. Chinese is quite simple by comparison. This is sort of something that people don't really know unless you studied Chinese. Spoken Chinese can be difficult because you've got to master all those tones. There are many different tones, depending on which language in the Sino-Tibetan family you're talking about. But if you get past the tones, spoken Chinese really isn't that difficult from a grammatical point of view. It's very simple. Word order. There's no conjugations. If you study Chinese, it's a breath of fresh air. You don't have to learn past tense, future tense, imperative, all these things. There are no tenses. You learn the form of a verb. You learn the word to eat, chur. And it doesn't matter if you're saying, I ate yesterday, I would like to eat tomorrow. No matter what verb tense you're using, it's just chur, and it's the context that determines whether it's past tense, future tense, or right now, or whatever it might be. Isn't that wonderful? It's very liberating to study a language like Chinese and realize how easy the grammar is. So, but this presents a problem. When the Koreans and the Japanese borrow the Chinese script to write the, you know, to represent their own forms of speech, it doesn't really work. You can only use the Chinese characters really for nouns and prepositions. You can't really use it for the conjugations and the complex grammar because that doesn't exist in the original Chinese. So they basically just use the Chinese characters for core verbs, core nouns, pronouns, but everything else. They said, we, we, we need a more flexible script to represent the rest of our language. So the Japanese came up with two more scripts, hiragana and katakana, to sort of supplement what Chinese was unable to do to represent the sounds of their drastically different language. Koreans came up with a system called hangul, the Vietnamese, as we know, came up with their own system. They said, this is how we can represent the sounds of our language, because we don't speak Chinese. So there were two options. You either learn classical Chinese script, a dead language that no one speaks as their first language, and you use that to write, which means you're essentially writing in a foreign language, a dead foreign language. Or you find a way to represent the sounds of your own spoken language by means of a script that was originally created for a language, for a form of speech that was grammatically night and day from your own language. This is why a lot of people actually study, you know, they find that they study Chinese and Japanese and they go, oh my God, Japanese is so hard. You have Altaic grammar 
And you have three scripts you have to learn. Hiragana, katakana, and kanji, the Chinese characters. Good luck with that. <laughs> um, now, within Sino-Tibetan, and we said, you know, Chinese languages, Tibetan languages, Burmese, and Tangut. Tangut was this, uh, uh, became the language of a short-lived state called the Western Xia in the early part of the second, millennial, second millennium AD in northwestern China that ruled over uh, uh, a kingdom for a couple, of, a couple hundred years. Um, and they're, they're within the Sino-Tibetan language family, but they still weren't happy with just importing Chinese and learning Chinese as a dead language, classical language that they were going to write in. They said, no, 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 we're going to adapt the Chinese characters as well into our own system. Um, and they created this visually fantastic new script where if you don't know anything about Chinese, you'll just think it looks like Chinese. But if you know Chinese, instantly you'll, you'll look at it and you go, wow, it looks like they took Chinese characters and they threw it in a blender, and then this is the result. It's completely different, even though all the elements are drawn from the original Chinese script. Um, so that's Tangut. Uh, it's unique because it eventually went extinct. Uh, Korean and Japanese, the way they adapted the Chinese script, uh, they obviously never went extinct, uh, but Tangut did. Um, and, and, and it's no, no longer around today. Um, and then finally, we had the Indo-European language. Again, we talked about the Tokharian uh, speakers in what is now northwestern China, probably were there between 2000 and 500 BC. Uh, surprisingly enough, we know that Chinese uh, borrowed words from Indo-European languages as well. One of the best examples is the word for honey. The Indo-European word for honey in Tokarian, it was mit. In English, mead. In Chinese, the word for honey is mi. And you put it together with other con with other words, and you get words for bee or you know honey and these sorts of things. Uh, mi comes from Tokarian mit, which we know better as English mead. Uh, so there's borrowings from all of these languages um, in, in antiquity. Now. Why do we talk so much about Mandarin Chinese at the expense of all the others? All right, when we talk about Mandarin Chinese, what we're essentially talking about is the form of Chinese that was spoken in northern China, anywhere from Xi'an to Beijing, all right, the sites of many of the capitals of some of the most uh, powerful and long-lasting dynasties. All right, they're all in northern China. Why do we talk so much about Mandarin Chinese? Not because it's the most widely spoken language in East Asia, because it is not. Okay. English is the most widely studied language in the world today, uh, but it does not have the most native speakers. If you want to get attention, if you want to have a lot of people who are trying to learn your language, you need something else. You need your language to be the language of institutions of power and culture. All right. English is the language of the internet, it's the language of medicine, it's the language of science. So, you know, it's the language of many things, so everyone has to learn it, whether they like it or not. That's what Northern Chinese was able to do for much of East Asian history. It was the language that was associated with the major institutions of power and cultural literacy. They were all based on Northern Chinese. Now, a great demonstration of this comes to us through the history of the word Mandarin. Okay, Mandarin Chinese has nothing to do with oranges. All right, where do where do we get the term Mandarin to sort of represent the Chinese language? Well, it begins when you have Portuguese sailors 
in the 1500s, the 1600s, who are going to India, stopping their, their ships in Goa, picking up Indian laborers, and then going on their merry way to southern China. Their colony in Macau, which they had until 1999, was a legacy of this. Um, and these Indian laborers, when they got to China on Portuguese ships, they saw the officials of the Qing dynasty, or the Ming dynasty, uh, uh, in, in power at that time. And they referred to them as Mantran, Mantran in their own Indian language, meaning an official. The Portuguese then pick up on that and take it in their own language as Mandarin. So originally Mandarin literally meant official because this is the, 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 these were the only Chinese people that the, for, the first foreigners who went to China were able to interact with, were the officials of southern China. Now, the fact that you have an official language of China that is used by the ruling elite just goes to show how important it was to create unity out of diversity. You don't create a single linguistic standard for the ruling elite to converse in unless there is so much linguistic diversity that you can't run an empire without it. Officials who served any given Chinese dynasty couldn't expect anyone outside their home community, their home village, to speak their native mother tongue, the language they speak with their mom and dad and brothers and sisters at home. When you leave your own home community and go out into the world, once you know before modern media and technology, all you have to do is get 50 miles or so from home and it becomes difficult to understand what people are saying if you haven't studied other people's languages. So these officials couldn't expect to leave their home village, go serve the empire, be sent around the empire to serve the emperor, and think, oh, I'm just going to use my native home language everywhere I go. Absolutely not. They had to learn the imperial standard, which was based on the form of speech used at the imperial capital. And more often than not, the imperial capital of most large, long-lasting states in East Asian history were in the north, from Xi'an to Beijing, that northern corridor. They weren't speaking in their home language. They weren't speaking in Cantonese. They learned Mandarin, official speech. And they themselves often referred to it as the language of the capital, Jinghua. The capital language. I've seen this phrase many times. They didn't really have the word for Chinese or Mandarin. They just called it the language of the capital. And that's what you had to learn. Now, this was further complicated by the fact that the written language was not a mere image of the spoken imperial language. Okay? The officials would learn the official speech, the informal speech that you say, you know, in everyday life to other ruling members of the elite. you got to learn that. That's going to be based on the northern capital. But then you also have to write documents and write essays and poetry. Are you going to write that in the informal speech of the northern capital? No. You want to have literary pretensions? You use classical Chinese, a dead language, the language of Confucius, the first millennium B.C., a language that might once have been spoken, but has long since ossified into a dead language that no one speaks as their first language and everyone learns. If you want a counterpart to this, think of you know clerical Latin 
in European history. Almost no one speaks it as their first language. No, 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 not almost. No one speaks it as their first language. But you learn clerical Latin in order to write to other elites like yourself and communicate with other people. And you use it in highly ritualized contexts as well. Religious incantations, various ceremonies. Classical Chinese is the same way. All right, you got to learn it as another language. It's very terse. It's very concise. When you read classical Chinese aloud, it doesn't really make sense unless you've memorized the passage that is being read and you're familiar with where that passage came from. Oh, he just said, you know, he just quoted a passage from the Spring and Autumn Annals. I know what that means. If you haven't read the Spring and Autumn Annals and a passage from the Spring and Autumn Annals is quoted in classical Chinese, you will not understand what he's saying. It'll sound really weird. So it's a dead language that no one speaks, but you have to learn to write in it. And the forms of that will also evolve over the centuries. All right, so this all produces the following complex but pretty typical pre-modern scenario for anyone who leaves the farm and seeks out wealth and power in the larger world. Let me give you an example. When an official from Guangdong in the far south wants to talk in person to another official from Shandong in the north, he spoke to him in the courtly forms of speech known as Mandarin Chinese to us today, but likely known to him simply as the speech of the capital. When that same official from Guangdong wanted to write a philosophical treatise or a personal letter that he hoped another member of the ruling elite, you know, an educated member of the ruling elite, maybe from Beijing, would be able to read, he wrote in one of several different forms of classical Chinese. Both of these forms of the written capital language and the classical Chinese took years to, of, of study to master, especially classical Chinese. It's very difficult. Then here's add, here we can add an, another wrinkle to the story. When either of these officials, either from Beijing or Guangdong, return home to chat with their wives or sons or daughters about mundane daily affairs, they probably didn't use either Mandarin Chinese or classical Chinese but rather their local quote-unquote dialect, <laughs> i.e. a mutually unintelligible form of speech outside a 50 or 100 mile radius, which was unintelligible to other people. To take an example from beyond China, if you're sick of me talking about China and you want to get examples from beyond China, when a Buddhist monk, let's say, from the Japanese islands wanted to communicate in writing from a distance with a Buddhist monastery located on the East Asian mainland during the Tang Dynasty, let's say, he too would write not in the present-day form of Japanese with its mix of Chinese characters and alphabetic hiragana and katakana, but rather in classical Chinese, in a form that Confucius himself likely could have read and made sense of. But if this same monk traveled in person to the Tang capital of Chang'an, present-day Xi'an, he would speak to local officials in Mandarin Chinese, which he learned as a second foreign language, and most of the officials probably learned as a foreign language, second foreign language as well. But the documents that he carried with him, letters of introductions, maybe Buddhist sutras that he was studying, they'd be written in a form of classical Chinese. As I said before, trying to make sense of all this from a Western perspective, think of the lingua franca for most of European history, clerical Latin for writing, Maybe French and German, both in speech and in writing in certain contexts. 
you know, uh, uh, maybe a priest or a nobleman from Canterbury, England, might speak a form of vernacular English among his own local parish. But when he traveled abroad to the European mainland, he almost certainly spoke French or German, not his own English quote-unquote dialect slash language. When he traveled to the European mainland, he spoke French or German, even if his audience was composed entirely of Spaniards. So long as his audience was educated, they would be fluent in both. But they wouldn't be fluent in his home dialect, which was only used among his local community back home. Now, if this same, uh, if this same priest or nobleman from Canterbury wanted to communicate in writing, not in person, through speech, if he wanted to communicate in writing with his priestly counterpart in Nuremberg, he would do so in clerical Latin a dead language like classical Chinese that neither man spoke as his native tongue. On the East Asian mainland, you get Mongols and Manchus and all sorts of other, what we often think of today as non-Chinese peoples. They wanted to rule over the imperial bureaucracy in East Asia, so they could and did master both Mandarin Chinese and Classical Chinese, just like Scots and Russians learned French, German, and clerical Latin if they entertained any hopes of engaging with institutions of power in Europe. If there's one enduring lesson that we should take away from these examples, it is that lang the language that a person speaks and writes does not always align with what we might expect to be their cultural or ethnic background. And whenever anyone in East Asia, from Korea to Japan to Guangdong to Xi'an to Mongolia to Tibet, whenever anyone in East Asia wanted to communicate with one another, if it wasn't a member of their home community within a 50 to 100 mile radius, they usually communicated by means of one or both parties learning what was to them essentially a foreign language, either in speech or writing, or both. And Mandarin Chinese and Classical Chinese were the most common lingua francas throughout East Asia that everyone would learn if they wanted to engage institutions of political power and cultural literacy. Please join me next time as we talk about the Book of Odes, perhaps the single most important of the canons, the literary canons that I've referred to when I've been talking about these uh, texts of cultural literacy that were studied throughout East Asia, from Japan all the way through the East Asian mainland, Korea. Anyone who wanted to be seen as civilized, a cultured gentleman, you read the Book of Odes and you took certain lessons away from it. And we will talk about the importance of the Book of Odes and what it contained in the next episode.